Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, August 11th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research and the expertise of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects, from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Nathan Leaf, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and in the chair next to me is Rich Larson. Rich, what do we have in store for our listeners today? Today, we welcome two ecologists, Dr. G. David Tillman and Dr. Janine Cavender-Bears from the University of Minnesota College of Biological Sciences to help us understand, drumroll please, the sixth mass extinction and its impacts. Dr. Tillman is an expert on the structure and dynamics of ecosystems. His research has focused on understanding the benefits society receives from both natural and managed ecosystems, along with the challenges facing environmental and social sustainability of these systems in the face of growing human population pressures and related consumption trends. Dr. Tillman has authored two books, edited three more, and published more than 160 scientific papers over more than 40 years at the University of Minnesota, where he currently serves as Regents Professor. His recent work examines the mechanisms of resource competition among plants, especially in the grasslands of Minnesota's Cedar Creek Ecosystem Science Reserve, where he serves as director. Dr. Tillman holds the McKnight University Presidential Chair in Ecology, and his honors include Guggenheim Fellow, Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, Pew Scholar in Conservation Biology, the, Ecolo- the, the Ecological Society of America's Cooper Award and, MacArthur, and the MacArthur Award and membership in the National Academy of Science. Dr. Tillman, that's quite a resume. He has previously served on a White House Science Advisory Panel and on the editorial boards of multiple science publications. Dr. Tillman received his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan. Dr. Janine Cavender-Bears is an expert in plant ecology and the evolutionary history of plant physiology and has focused on improving humanity's understanding of how ecosystems function in response to global change. She has published more than 170 scientific papers as a distinguished McKnight University professor at the University of Minnesota. She is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is renowned for her efforts to develop capabilities in remote sensing of biodiversity to detect and measure change in ecosystems. Dr. Cavender Bears is the lead investigator of a National Science Foundation and NASA biodiversity project to advance such remote sensing capabilities and was the lead editor for the open access book, Remote Sensing of Plant Biodiversity. 
She serves on the governing board of the Ecological Society of America and was appointed to serve on the public-facing Biological Sciences Advisory Committee to the National Science Foundation from 2019 to 2021. Dr. Cavender Bears is the director of the NSF-funded Biology Integration Institute, ASCEND, on using spectral biology and predictive models for the study of biodiversity and global change and served as one of the coordinating lead authors of the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services Report for the Americas. She was a former Fulbright Scholar in both Mexico and Germany and Chateaubriand Fellow in France. Dr. Carvinder Bears received her PhD from Harvard University. Rich, I think it's safe to say we have experts on our show today. This is the first time it's taken us three minutes to inter- introduce our two guests, Dr. Tillman and Dr. Janine, uh, Dr. David Tillman and Dr. Janine Cavender Bears. Welcome to Public Policy this week. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for the invitation. Oh, we are we are just honored that you would join us today. Nathan and I are in the uh, the KYMN studios in the heart of beautiful downtown Northfield, Minnesota. Um, where are each of you this morning? Well, uh, I'm in my office at the University of Minnesota on the St. Paul campus, um, enjoying a beautiful summer day. And I am sitting in my home office right by the Mississippi River in St. Paul. That sounds nice. Beautiful. Well, let's get this conversation started. I'm really excited to um, cover what is a very weighty topic. And I want to start that conversation with the big picture for our listeners, if we could, and a definition of what we will discuss. So scientists define a mass extinction as a global plant and animal disappearance event in which 75% or more of Earth species go extinct in a period less than 3 million years. So can each of you tell us a bit about at which point in your academic careers you became aware of the current sixth mass extinction and how it impacted the course of your study? Well, let me start. Um, My career was motivated by this uh, interest in and frankly love of, of, uh, of biological diversity and the mystery that surrounded that. We really didn't know how and why the world came to have so many different kinds of plants and animals. Um, And I loved as a, before I was a grad student and as a grad student and after then, I loved going out into new areas and seeing what I can see there and discovering uh, new plants and animals I'd never seen. Um, And what I kept finding is when I I go back to a place where I first saw a sawed owl or a grand herd owl or a certain orchid, you know, five or 10 years later, it would often be gone. It'd be turned into a housing development or a shopping mall or roads would be paved through it. Or sometimes it became farmland. And this kept happening over and over. And and I've been doing science for 50 years now since I started my PhD more than 50 years. So it's a lot of the places I saw things are gone. And I realized this wasn't just happening in Michigan where I grew up or Minnesota where I've been for the last almost 50 years. Um, It was a global impact. It was what humanity was really doing all around the world. We are destroying natural ecosystems. We're pushing more and more of the species that had lived in them toward extinction. We first did this in America's about 10,000 years ago uh, when uh, people combined with a, a rapidly changing climate led to the extinction of almost all the large animals that used to be in the Americas. We used to have mammoth elephants, mastodon elephants. We had beavers twice the size of our current beavers, bison much bigger than our current bison. 
We have things called ground sloths and so on. Hundreds of large animal species were driven extinct in that time period. And I realized then that we were doing the same thing now uh, because of human impacts. Uh, we were causing, if we were really extending this extinction event that began maybe 10,000 years ago in America, it was, it was going on and on, not just here, but all around the world. That's the mass extinction event that we are now part of. So I'll follow up uh, Dave's comments with how I first learned about species extinction and the impact it had on me. Um, so I will first just say that I have descended from people who live very close to the land, farmers, foresters, fur traders. And I spent a lot of time on my grandfather's farm growing up. And my dad's also a biologist, so I grew up spending a lot of time in the natural world, hiking, camping across North America. So I was aware of, of species and biodiversity and had a great love for nature. But I didn't really think about biodiversity loss until I remember reading Aldo Leopold's Sand, Cal Sand County, County Almanac in um, grad school. And I I read the part about the passenger pigeon going extinct. Of course, I knew it had gone extinct, but the way he wrote about it, when I realized that my grandfather's parents would have known the passenger pigeon, there were billions of birds flying across the skies. This was hugely ecologically important species for seed dispersal and eco um, changing ecosystem properties, influencing nutrient cycling across the continent and also a beautiful bird and one that was much loved and it was a smart bird and it was widely hunted so much so that it went extinct and so by the time i was on planet earth it was no longer around and and the tragedy of losing a species that i knew just my recent ancestors would have experienced made me feel really sad i, I just remember that moment of recognizing that. And then the story of the American chestnut, you know, I grew up in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains and the chestnut was a hugely important tree in the Appalachian Mountains and provided food for wildlife. Billions of trees were lost due to an Asian chestnut blight that was accidentally introduced to the Americas. And that was another tree that I didn't get to experience as a mature tree. You can still see it it will grow to be a sapling, but it never gets bigger than that. And so the loss of those two species uh, uh, made me aware of this mass extinction that was increasingly being written about. In in my undergraduate, I wrote my senior thesis on acid rain. I studied it in the U.S. and Germany, and I, I became aware that you could actually pass policies to change processes that were killing trees and fish. And so I thought maybe going into environmental policy would be a way forward to to help this problem. And I tried that for a while. I almost did a PhD in environmental policy, but I spent a lot of time interviewing scientists during that work and realized that I really wanted to know how things worked and decided to then spend my career studying how things worked and why things were changing 
And then I've tried to convey that information in the policy arena without myself being a policy expert. <laughs> That's uh, always an interesting uh, 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 way to go about it, too. Um, I would like to dig a little bit into the, the causes of these extinction events um, because it appears that all of them are related to climate change. The first was the result of an unusually uh, extensive and prolonged ice age. Uh, a couple of the later extinctions were apparently caused by global warming from extended periods of elevated volcanic activity. And then of course we have the, the famous and most recent extinction event uh, from the abrupt climate change caused by the catastrophic impact of the asteroid that uh, struck the Yucatan 66 million years ago. Is climate change at work again with the current mass extinction? Um, and what does the evidence tell, tell us? Uh, Dr. Tillman, we'll start with you on that one. Well, um, climate change is going to have a big effect, but it hasn't had much of an effect so far. There have been some very detailed analyses done by thousands of scientists around the world on this issue. And there are really right now four major well-documented causes of uh, the extinction event that we're in. Um, the first and most important of these is destruction of ecosystems. When we destroy an ecosystem, the organisms that live there don't have a place to live. We destroy enough of those ecosystems and some of those species go extinct. So that is the number one. The number two um, is uh, overhunting um, and uh, overharvesting of, of, uh, of animals. That also causes extinctions as passenger pigeons uh, that Janine mentioned uh, are an example of. Um, Pollution is another cause of, of, of extinction, extinction risk, especially water pollution uh, for the animals that live in that water. It's a massive change to their environment. And finally, climate change. Those all matter. But it's sort of in that order right now. But climate change, remember, we're just on the cusp of a really large change in climate. So it, it will be more important later on. Now, the human-caused habitat destruction uh, mainly occurs uh, when native grasslands and native forests are converted into croplands. That's the single biggest cause. 80% of the animals on earth that are threatened with extinction are threatened by that land clearing that is going on, mainly now in tropical regions. Um, the next biggest cause is excessive hunting. Um, and uh, this uh, it's for game. Um, lots of animals that we wouldn't think of eating are eaten all around the world as wild game. Uh, for instance, 13 primates that remain in Asia that are all threatened with extinction are threatened because they are hunted for food. And they're at very, very low levels, and uh, they may be on a path toward extinction. Uh, overfishing is doing this to fish and other animals uh, in oceans. Um, so uh, these things are there, but we expect climate change is going to be an increasingly important factor what is happening as uh, climate changes, as the climate that a species is adapted to, that it has lived in its whole life on Earth, is no longer going to be where that species is living. The climate is changing. It's moving. They'll be living in places where the climate isn't a climate they can live with. And unless these species can move rapidly enough into places where they, the climate is right for them, they're going to go extinct. Uh, and not many species can move very rapidly in the first place much less move rapidly when so much of the earth is places where they can't live. So much of it is farmland, roads, cities, uh, et cetera, uh, dominated by human activity. Um, 
Let me see right. here. So, and, and let me just sort of mention how we know this. It really has been more than 100,000 species that have been studied in depth all around the world by experts who know those species, know what's impacting them. There has been this analysis by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature that has looked in depth at these species and used very strict science-based rules to determine whether or not they were threatened. And right now, about a third of all the species that have been studied are now known to be threatened with extinction, to be on a path toward extinction unless we change what we're doing. Dr. Kavanagh Bears. Yeah, well, I'll talk a little bit about how we monitor biodiversity and some very important new developments. But first, let me go back to what I mentioned earlier about environmental policy. During the days that I was working in that realm, I learned how important monitoring is for being able to uh, develop policy and know if policies are working. So you have to know what is there and how things are changing before you can management manage it and develop policies and know if the policies are really doing what we think they're doing and evaluating what actors are doing. Are, are they actually doing what they say they're doing? So monitoring is a critical component in any kind of uh, policy progression and it's been hard to monitor biodiversity. There's so many millions of species and uh, it requires experts that have spent their lives um, learning what they are and the, the earth is so big and there are so many remote areas that are hard to get to. Um, this has made it much more difficult to monitor biodiversity than it has been to monitor climate, for example. And so, Scientists have spent a lot of time trying to figure out shortcuts for monitoring biodiversity. We know that biodiversity is connected and variation we see at the ecosystem level is very predictive of how many species are there. And we care about all kinds of variation from genetic variation to species variation to evolutionary variation and, and the functions of organisms. All these kinds of variation are part of biodiversity and need to be monitored. And it turns out that the sensors that NASA has been putting up in space to understand and look for life on other planets also can be turned towards Earth to look at the nature of life on Earth. And uh, hyperspectral sensors, which means um, many wavelengths, the, the sensors that can, can detect many components of light that go beyond what your eye can see. Your eye can, has, can see in sort of three parts of the light spectrum from the sun. Um, and all everything we see in the world is based on those three components, red, green, blue. And turns out the sun spectrum goes in many wavelengths that are much longer than what our eye can see and tells us many things that our eyes can't actually see about surfaces and the living planet. And so we have been working with a team of scientists to develop ways to interpret those signals that can be put on aircraft, on drones, and on satellites to monitor the variation on Earth. And we've been working very hard to try to interpret those signals in terms of components of biodiversity we can make sense of. And NASA has now launched a 600 
million dollar mission called the Surface Biology and Geology Mission to monitor biodiversity on Earth. It has not launched yet, but it will be within the next decade. The European Space Agency is also uh, in tandem with NASA going to launch a similar satellite and those two together will be able to monitor components of life's variation that we can interpret in terms of biodiversity. And this is uh, going to be an essential component of what uh, scientists and conservationists and policymakers around the globe are trying to develop as a, a global biodiversity observing system. And this will be really important for the Kunmin Montreal uh, global biodiversity framework that was recently agreed upon um, in, in Montreal in December 2022. This will provide some monitoring capability for biodiversity, and the work we're doing helps interpret that in terms of uh, things that you and I could make sense of about about diversity, species, and ecosystems. That's interesting. You know, I I never thought about uh, NASA in terms of biodiversity or or turning it back onto Earth, but that makes perfect sense. Of course, that's that's fantastic. Okay, so this brings us to the issue of the Anthropocene, um, a, a, a term coined by scientists uh, years ago to describe the onset of a new geologic epoch following the previous Holocene epoch, marked by the point at which humans, be, uh, humans began to dramatically affect and alter the physical Earth. Can you talk about when this Anthropocene epoch began and its relevance to the sixth mass extinction? Well, uh, first, as you mentioned, when uh, geologists see a major shift in what's uh, happening on Earth, often in the fossil record and the species that are on Earth, uh, they call that era, uh, that, that shift, uh, as creating a new era, a new epoch. And the Holocene is uh, the time period uh, during uh, for a major shift that happened when all of the glaciers, the huge glaciers that had covered North America, uh, the northern parts of uh, Europe and Asia, when that glacier melted and the earth had much more land available and uh, uh, the climate was much, much different than it had been before. And so that that era, the Holocene, which started about 12,000 years ago, uh, had been going along uh, merrily, uh, doing the normal things that we see in ecology. Uh, up until the exact time and point is hard to say, but um, if you look at the biology of, uh, of it and biological changes, um, humans were having a huge impact. Uh, for instance, we took uh, uh, four of the rarest plants on earth, corn, wheat, rice, and soybeans, and made them the four most abundant plants on earth. And in doing that, we used 40% of uh, earth's land surface to be used for agriculture, a huge change from what was going on before. We took a few rare bird species and mammals, chickens, cattle, turkeys, and hogs, and made them the four most abundant animals on earth when they would really not been very abundant at all before that. And in doing that, we took over lands, habitats, where those animals, where other animals had lived and made those animals quite rare. And so this is a major shift in the ecology of the earth, what was living there, but we also greatly changed the chemistry of the earth. And uh, one big change in the chemistry is nitrogen. Nitrogen normally is a very stable gas in the atmosphere, N2. It makes up 80% of the air we breathe. 
it's very hard for life to get a form of nitrogen they can use. We can't turn into biologically ourselves into anything we can use. It's just there. It's inert to us. And it's been inert to everything on all life on Earth for the last three billion years. Uh, it's only when it's turned into a usable form like ammonium or nitrate and so on that life can use it uh, and use it to make the proteins and everything else that we need. And we have more than double the amount of nitrogen uh, available forms of nitrogen on Earth in the last 50 years that let us greatly increase food production, which is which is vastly important to support the lives of 8 billion people, but has had some other major impacts with uh, air and water pollution. And uh, probably most well-known, uh, we've greatly increased greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Uh, greenhouse gases determine the climate of Earth, and we are entering a whole new climate era, one that goes beyond the changes we saw in the Holocene or we may be going back to climates that have not been seen on Earth for um, hundreds, uh, 10 million, 50 million years, or something like that. Oh. So that really is this whole new era we are in, a human-created Earth in a way that no other animal had ever impacted Earth, uh, the whole the uh, Holocene being turned into the new Anthropocene. And Dr. Cavender Bears, can you briefly uh, discuss specifics of of measured species loss that we've seen over the last 70 or 75 years in that in the context of the onset of that Anthropocene? Yeah, well, we know from the global uh, assessment that was done by the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services that uh, about a million species globally are facing extinction. We know from various sources that one in five plant species are facing extinction. This sort of blows my mind when you think about walking around and one in every five plant species that you see uh, could be under threat. Of course, the rate of extinction varies in different regions, different biomes uh, around the world. And um, but we are facing extinction rates orders of magnitude, 100 times more than we we faced prior to uh, European settlement. I study trees and uh, there is a lot of data on trees in the United States, thanks to investment in surveys by the US Forest Service and uh, other agencies. And in a study that we did recently, we looked at the threats of increasing fire frequency and found that 40% of tree species are threatened by changes in you know, increased fire in the United States Pests and pathogens are increasing their impacts. They just continue to do this. We saw the chestnut blight, but then we saw the Dutch elm disease. We saw emerald ash borer. We're seeing white pine rust, and now we've got oak wilt. Uh, at least 16% of tree species are, are threatened, and 40% of total tree biomass is threatened with pests and pathogens in the United States. Climate change, species are getting pushed out of the envelope of climate in which they currently live, the climate realm that they are known to do well in. 88% of tree species um, will are forecast by 2050 to be moving, to have part of their range move out of a climate regime that they can live in. So these are some of the threats facing trees. We know that billions of birds, uh, not just species, but the population sizes, are declining um, at, a, at alarming rates. Um, but also we have a lot of unknowns in precise numbers because these are hard to count. And this is one of the, and, and the data differs among countries, among regions. 
this is the one of the reasons we need new ways to monitor biodiversity because it's hard to quantify exactly but we need to know where things are changing fast so that we can focus attention in those places so both of you are experts in plant life and thus i was wondering if maybe you could tell our listeners a bit about why plant life is foundational for animal life and and maybe explain what biodiversity is and why it is so important in the plant-animal relationship. Well, let me start on this. Uh, we all know that, that uh, all of the food we get ultimately comes from plants. Uh, plants, uh, as we know, take sunlight and nutrients from the soil and turn it into themselves. And they contain, when we eat them, we get from them proteins, sugars, fats, oils, uh, vitamins, carbohydrates, and so on, all the things we need to live. And that's true for all the animals. All the animals either eat plants or eat animals that ate plants. And so the plant, all the plant species on Earth are really the, the source of, of all the productivity that runs the Earth's ecosystems. Biodiversity refers to all the different kinds of plants and animals that we see around us. So, for instance, if you look at uh, in depth at an acre of Minnesota prairie, which I personally love to do, it's an amazing place, um, you would find about a hundred different species of plants, about a thousand different species of insects, and several dozen species of birds, mammals, and snakes. And if you moved a couple of miles away, you'd find some different ones of all those species. All those species are the biological diversity. And in fact, within those species, the species often differ, uh, individuals in the species from each other genetically. And that's another part of biodiversity that's very important for agriculture is genetic diversity that lets us find the right genes to overcome a problem that we're having or to give greater food production. So I've spent a lot of my time studying how all of these species, let's say all these plants, which interact with each other, compete with each other, how do they coexist? It really gets down to why does the world have so many plant species? Why isn't there one species which does everything out there? Um, and I like to say uh, that a species is something quite analogous to a human profession. When we gain a skill to become a professional, we spend a lot of time doing that, which means we're not spending a lot of time doing getting some other professional skill. We become specialized. I'm a good ecologist, but don't come to me if you have a, uh, have a toothache <laughs> uh, or if you need some accounting work or carpentry or anything else, because that's not what I do. I have a special, I'm a specialist. Each species is a specialist that does something better than something else can do it. Um, think about our society. Uh, I mean, we need every profession. There are thousands of professions. We need every one of them for modern society. You get rid of a single profession, get rid of carpenters. Where are we going to live? Get rid of electricians, get rid of plumbers, get rid of garbage collectors. You choose a profession. And without it, we don't function as well. And that's really what happens in ecosystems. Uh, each species does something better than something else can do it. That's why it's there. But it does it at a cost. There's a trade-off. To become better at doing one thing, it can't put its efforts into doing something else. And that means it does something very well and everything else it doesn't do very well at all. And each species does something well. As soon as you get rid of a species, when you lose diversity, you lose that ability. And species after species, the ecosystems in which they live are now functioning less and less well. Now, this is, sounds like an idea, and I wouldn't tell it to you if we didn't have really solid scientific backing for what I'm, what I'm summarizing. Let me quickly explain 
how we've tested this and how others have tested it since uh, around the world. In 1994, we set up the first experiment in the world to ask, does biodiversity matter? Does it influence how ecosystems operate? Um, we use prairie species, perennials, long-life perennials, and we planted plots with either one species or two or four or eight or 16. Um, and then we followed many, these are many replicate plots, lots of plots, randomly placed, all the things you have to do to do good science. Um, and what we've seen uh, is that the plots we plant with 16 different plant species on average are producing 240% more biomass each year. If you were a farmer, you could mow this and, and use it as hay. So 240% more hay than if you grew those same 16 species each by themselves in a monoculture. Mixing them together lets them interact and lets that whole system have the efficiency of these 16 different professionals in it doing each one doing its own thing, making that whole system much more productive, 240% more productive. Moreover, they're more reliable. When you look at what happens from one year to the next, when there is one species or two or few low diversity, it varies a lot in response uh, to climate variation, a hot year, a hot week, a cold week, a, a warm summer, a wet summer, a dry summer, all those things matter. And if there's only one or a few species, productivity goes up and down in response to that quite a bit. When there are all 16 species present in a system with high diversity, that productivity is not only higher, it's more reliable. It varies less from year to year. The different species are able to average across the years when they do well uh, and, and something else does poorly and vice versa, because one can sort of take the place of the other as climate and other things change. So the last thing we saw, which is a, a, also of great relevance to agriculture, is that there's a lot less diseases attacking plants in these high diversity mixtures. So disease incidence goes down the incidence of insect pests attacking the plants goes down at high plant diversity compared to monocultures. Now, these ideas uh, were surprising to say the least, because when we did this work in the, in the 1990s, started it, ecologists did not think diversity mattered very much. Most ecologists didn't think it mattered very much. And that made it controversial. All scientists are, are doubting Thomases. All scientists question everybody else and only believe it when they see other people being able to achieve the same thing. And because of this, more than 100 other groups of scientists around the world have done similar experiments on all different kinds of species. And they keep finding the same thing. Greater diversity leads to greater productivity, greater stability, uh, and lower disease incidence consistently across, as I said, 100 different studies all around the world. So biodiversity is an incredibly important thing. In fact, when you look at all the things ecologists have studied in grasslands, the single most important variable ever studied, fire and climate variation, everything else, in determining how productive and how stable those grasslands are is their biodiversity. It is the keeping of ecosystems that can run effectively and efficiently. For our listeners, this is Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Nathan Leaf, and my co-host Rich Larson and I are talking with Dr. David Tillman and Dr. Janine Cavender-Bears about the sixth mass extinction. Let's talk about how this mass extinction is, is affecting us here in Minnesota. Um, what do we know and what don't we know about what's happening to plant and animal species here in the state? 
Dr. Cavender Barris, okay. do you want to? Okay. Um, well, there's been some good reporting um, in the Star Tribune about what's going on in Minnesota itself. And we know that we've we've lost quite a number of species uh, through time. The caribou is no longer here. The gray wolf is um, very limited. The original buffalo are no longer here. And uh, there are many plants, many orchids, uh, including orchids, and a number of species that once were here that we're no longer finding. Um, one of the things that's happened is that uh, there's been a we've converted our prairies to farmland and we've also changed fire regimes so we've lost uh, huge amounts of the oak savanna that once covered large areas of Minnesota and is a huge source of biodiversity here in the state so that's one major decline and then we've also um, been experiencing a host of diseases that are killing trees as I mentioned before um, and so that's what's going on here locally. We also know that our waterways are, um, impacted by pollution and we're, we're get, aquatic life is changing. Uh, luckily we have important protections on the boundary waters canoe area is a really important region for wilderness and, and biodiversity and really strong conservation efforts in the state. So we have a lot of positive things going on as well. Dr. Tillman, can you uh, tell us about the uh, the Cedar Creek Ecosystem Science Reserve uh, and, and what research there uh, has, has done to inform us about what might be happening to biodiversity elsewhere in the state? Well, it's... It's clear from our work that uh, there are many things that are harming plant biodiversity. And when you lose plant species, you start losing all the other species that depend upon them in the whole food web. So uh, one thing that really matters in the state is um, nitrogen deposition. So a lot of nitrogen is used uh, on farms uh, to increase yields on cropland, and that's an important thing to do. Uh, but some of that nitrogen evaporates into the air and then comes down with rain. And it's sort of like free fertilizer. You might think, wow, fertilizer, that's a great thing to happen. Well, as I mentioned earlier, life on Earth has been limited by nitrogen uh, since the beginning of time. And most species are here because they have differing abilities to acquire and use nitrogen in their life. They're specialized on that. And when you add more of something, the something is specialized on, it no longer becomes limiting and that no longer matters. And what they do, their efficiency no longer uh, is of any relevance and they often are driven extinct, locally extinct from ecosystems. And we see this uh, uh, around the US, but including Minnesota, areas that are downwind, let's say from uh, uh, heavily uh, farmed fields, heavily fertilized fields, uh, they, you start losing plant diversity and, and some native remnants that are there of prairie, um, areas that are downwind from livestock operations. A lot of ammonia goes in the air from livestock operations, from the sewage, the, the manure, and so on. Uh, and then it uh, dissolves in the air and comes down when it rains or just comes falls out of the air as, as ammonia precipitation. And, and those things are a major cost of loss of plant diversity. And that loss of plant diversity is going to work its way up the whole food web. 
Dr. Cavender Bears, you mentioned trees. I want to ask you uh, in a bit more detail about that because for those of us who grew up in the Twin Cities in the 1970s and 1980s, we remember how the devastation of Dutch elm disease destroyed this dense canopy of elm trees that covered nearly every city street in Minneapolis and St. Paul, which removed so much of the shade we enjoyed uh, from the July and August sun. You happen to be an expert in oak trees, and sadly, oak wilt is now the third major vascular wilt disease to affect North American trees in the last century, which you mentioned, and you discussed chestnut blight, which has practically wiped out the American chestnut tree. These diseases are all invasive exotic pathogens. Can you tell us about the dynamics of biodiversity loss involved in these tree pathogens and explain to our listeners how they impact the state's ecosystem? Yeah, so first of all, I'll just explain that oak trees are the have the most biomass of any tree group in the United States, meaning there are more oak trees than any other kind of tree in the United States, um, which has really important impacts on pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and regulating climate. Really important uh, services in terms of removing air pollution because the leaves actually filter the air and remove particulate matter that uh, causes all kinds of respiratory problems in humans and kills people. And so trees, including these oak trees, um, are really important for that. Um, their roots go deep, and so they uh, prevent erosion, and they do all kinds of things that, that provide services to humans. We benefit from trees. They. Um, the erosion prevents loss of our soil and runoff into water. So, so it's important to keep in mind how important oak trees are and, and all of our trees are um, in terms of the services they provide. And it, they're actually much more value. We did a study recently and we find they're many uh, times more valuable in growing than they are cut down for wood products because of the climate regulation and health benefits we get from them. So um, oak wilt is a fungal pathogen, it's Brettsiella phagocerum, and it was first discovered in the late 1800s in North America and, and first found in Minnesota in about 1944 in St. Paul. But it was it was around longer than that. And for a long period of time, it wasn't really causing too much damage because um ecosystems maybe maybe were uh in in a better state um but with a lot of the logging that went on and the use of firewood um oak wilt started to spread it spreads from spores and it's the main way that it actually spreads is through grafted roots from neighboring trees um so the the vessels, these are the little tubes through which water moves. It's kind of like veins in our bodies. So There's a circulatory system, it's called xylem. The xylem vessels and roots, is the fungus moves through those and, and neighboring trees, the roots can graft together and the fungus can move from one root to the neighboring tree and it forms these oak wilt pockets or these disease centers and, and you get death of many trees together because of the spread below ground. 
it affects the red oaks more than the white oaks. And when I say red oaks, I mean the group of trees like northern red oak, Quercus rubra, or pin oak, Quercus ellipsoidalis, that are in a particular lineage of oaks with bristle tips. And uh, we see them as having deep lobes and bristle tips here in Minnesota. Those, for them, this fungus is deadly and it will kill them within a year. But then there's a group of white oaks. And by this, I mean the bur oaks, Quercus macrocarpa, and white oak, Quercus alpha, and so about half the oaks in the United States are red oaks and half are white oaks. And then there are also live oaks. Um, for the red oaks, the pathogen is deadly. For the white oaks, they can actually survive. And so when there's a balance of red and white oaks and other trees mixed in in a healthy forest, the disease is not as deadly as when um, the white oaks are removed from the system or um, when the pathogen is spreading faster. Uh, than background levels, which is what happened when firewood started getting moved around quickly, when there was a lot of logging, when dynamics started to change, when ecosystems were disrupted so that the pathogen uh, started moving much more quickly. It also moves over land, uh, so it moves from spores. So when people move firewood around, the spores get moved around, but it can't actually infect an uninfected tree without some kind of a vector like an insect. So they're, they're sap-feeding beetles, natitulid beetles that are attracted to spore mats that form on the red oaks um, when the tree dies for a few weeks. Those spore mats, they smell really good. The insects are attracted to them. The insect will land on it, take the spores, and then they can travel long distances and spread the disease that way. Uh, so that's... Uh, and so if there's a wound on an uninfected tree and the beetle lands there, it can infect the, the tree. And that so it's spreading throughout the Midwest. It's spreading northward in Minnesota. It's spreading eastward. Um, and it's spreading faster than um, it, we've been able to manage it, although the management is actually working. And one of the main ways that, that uh, foresters are managing Oakwell is by severing root connections so that the below ground spread is reduced. And uh, people that I work with have experimented with different approaches for severing those root connections, but they tend to use a ring outside. There's the dead trees and then there's trees that you can't quite tell if they're healthy or not. And then they take a buffer ring around those and cut using a vibratory plow, a very deep blade into the soil, they cut the root connections to prevent spread that way. And they also remove the trees and sources of spores. So the, the treatment is effective, but it's a lot of work um, to do that. It, it requires uh, continued attention. Um, so the, so the, 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 I think that... The takeaway from that, it sounds like, is, is uh, a healthy ecosystem with biodiversity almost self-manages the problem. But as soon as you start getting uh, uh, extinction of uh, certain trees and insects and thus the proliferation of others, you need radical human intervention to try and manage the problem. Well, that may be the case. It's a bit it's a bit more complicated than that, unfortunately, than that, unfortunately. And it's now gotten to the point where it will not be contained without management. The, the disease has actually spread far and wide. And so it, it, it's gone beyond the point of uh, being balanced. Right. Oh. I'm curious about- could I, could I jump in with a question? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm wondering whether 
the suppression of fire that has happened across much of North America has uh, changed uh, forests to have a higher red oak uh, uh, proportion, and that might also be contributing to the spread of the disease. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. But why would it promote red oaks more than white oaks? Well, white oaks tend to be more fire resistant, bur oak for sure, but I think other white oaks tend to uh, be more fire resistant. Mm. Mm. Anyway, I don't want to divert us, but it just yeah. occurred to me, who can resist a scientific discussion? <laughs> well, I can explain to you, one thing I can tell you is that the white oaks, the reason they are um, more protected from uh, <clears throat> from oak wilt is because they have very narrow vessels compared to red oaks, and they also have more efficient immune systems. They grow more slowly, and that may contribute to their, they also have thicker bark that may contribute to their fire tolerance, but they are also have have more efficient immune systems. And when the fungus infects them, they quickly block those little xylem vessels and prevent spread throughout the tree. And so they can kind of contain the disease and that's, they still get infected, but they contain it better so they don't die from it. Um, and that could be related to fire tolerance. They're, they're longer lived, they tend to be more disease resistant in general. So there could be something there, Dave. All right. <laughs> I. I not to, I, I, we have to sh shift gears a little bit, but I, I'm fascinated by this, o if only because I own some land up in northern Wisconsin. I've got quite a few white oaks on my property, and I, 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 this is the first I'm hearing about oak wilt, so it's, uh, that's troubling. <laughs> but we have to, we have to uh, move on. Um, I want to ask about the ways biodiversity loss might impact our local farming communities, as many of our listeners are farmers. Um, are there examples of a significant decline in a, in a plant or animal species here in the region uh, that has resulted in a proliferation of a pest or an invasive species that, that reduces crop yields uh, and increases risks and costs to farmers? Well, that's a good question. And if I uh, were trained as an agronomist and in that specialty of profession, I'd probably know the answer, but I really don't know the answer to that. But I'd like to sort of address something which I think uh, could be done to help reduce those kinds of problems. And it's a way that, that uh, you can use more crop diversity. So, you know, right now, 70% of all the calories that we eat come from four crops, corn, wheat, rice, and soybeans. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore we plant lots of these all around the world there are lots of them living out there in fields, and we have these huge fields of crops that are almost genetically identical, one individual to the next. You do the same thing for, let's say, growing chickens. We put 100,000 genetically identical chickens in the same pen, in the same big building, and grow them and try to keep them safe from disease. But when a disease comes, it can attack one individual, it can, it can attack them all. And so there's a couple kinds of genetic diversity that, of diversity that might really help. Uh, one is going out to wild relatives of crops and finding genes for crops that are resistant to emerging diseases. We do that all the time. And we'll be able to do it better when we can more easily move genes from uh, one species into another species. But there's a different way that has been found and been used quite successfully uh, in, in uh, several nations, especially China, and it's called intercropping. What you actually do is you plant more than one crop in a field. And normally you plant a row about three to five feet wide of one crop and next to it a row of a different crop about three to five feet wide back and forth across the whole field. 
crop A, crop B, crop A, crop B. It could be corn, soybean, corn, soybean. And that does several things. It makes each of those plants be half as abundant in the field. And there's a, there's a surprising number of crop diseases that can't live when their crop, their host, is at a lower abundance than a full, fully planted field. So that actually can get rid of diseases. A very famous case was for two different varieties of rice, where the fungus was attacking one and not the other. Growing alternate strips of the two varieties totally eliminated the need to use a fungicide to control the disease. Wow. What else happens is this. If you plant two crops like that have a different ecology, let's say maize corn grows best when it, in the hot part of the growing season with something else that grows best uh, when it's cool, um, the cool season plant will grow and pretty much complete much of its life cycle before corn is very big. And when it's gone, the corn doesn't have, isn't being shaded on its edges, so it gets more light and it has, its roots can go out where the other crop had been and grow better. And when this has been done, if you look at the total amount of the crops you get off of, off an acre of land, you get about, depending on the combination of crops, 15 to 30% more crop production in total per acre of land if you grow the right combination of two crops together than if you grow just one crop and the other crop, let's say each on half of that land. And, and that is being done in China uh, very successfully, but China has lots of unmechanized agriculture. They have amazingly high yields, but they're small farms, a couple acres done, a lot of it by hand in the way that we haven't done it for a hundred years. Uh, and to have this work in the United States, we have to find the right combinations of crops for the right soils. That's a lot of agronomic research. And we have to make the tools that can harvest and plant and harvest when you have these alternating strips. So I'm not telling you farmer to go out and try this now, but I think if we're wise, if we can get 20 or more percent of food off every acre of land, the world needs less land. We will have to destroy less habitat all around the world, less threat to biological diversity, less extinction by making agriculture be a more efficient process than it is right now. Okay, so taking that then to the the, the global level, um, does the mass ex does this mass extinction represent a threat to the green revolution that has enabled humanity to to feed ex its explosive growth? I mean, in 1960, we we're at three billion people. Uh, just uh, 62 years later, here we are at eight billion people today. I mean, is 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 this a threat to the the green revolution? Um, okay, so I am not an agronomist either, um, but we do share land for, with our uh, with the rest of biodiversity on planet Earth. We we are part of nature, and the other species on planet Earth need land to survive, just like we need it to grow food. So there is going to always be a trade off between agricultural produ production and biodiversity, and we have to think about that. I mean, we actually have to manage, given that we know more land going into agriculture is less land for biodiversity. Why should we care about biodiversity? Well, we haven't really enumerated the many ecosystem services that humans benefit from and that we depend on for our survival besides food production. So food production is one of them. And, and Dave talked about ways that you could have higher biodiversity and still get uh, high food production. But plants depend on pollination services that depend on there being biodiversity. So plants can't reproduce without 
pollination, like bees, butterflies, birds, bats, those all require habitat. And many of the foods uh, um, that we depend on require pollination services that come from other species in, in natural areas. Uh, we need biodiversity for water purification. I mean, where does clean water come from? We depend on ecosystems, healthy ecosystems that are full of, full of life, doing all their different jobs um, to decay in the soil and to have healthy soil that processes the water, the water filters through the soil, the, so the water is clean, goes back into our reservoirs and recycled in hydrologic cycles so that we have clean, clean water to drink. Uh, biodiversity cleans the air. Air purification ser services depend on having healthy ecosystems beyond agricultural systems. Flood control, slash flooding depends on having healthy trees and roots that, that go deep into soil, not just agricultural systems. And so we, while we need agricultural systems for our food, we need all these other kinds of services uh, to maintain stable systems that we can live in, climate regulation, and then medicinal resources, recreation, tourism, mental health. Like we need, we need green space for our own mental health to go out in nature, breathe fresh air. Um, it's been shown over and over again that we do better when we uh, spend time in nature. So all of these things mean that humans humans need nature in addition to food, and so we have to find ways to balance these. And, and there are ways to do this. We know how to do this. And um, it is just a manner of, of managing the space we have on planet Earth, the finite space we have on planet Earth, so that we can produce the food we need, but also maintain the biodiversity and all the services that we benefit from and that we depend on for survival. For our listeners, this is Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Rich Larson, and alongside me is my uh, co-host, Nathan Leaf. We are fortunate to be joined today by Dr. David Tillman and Dr. Janine Cavender-Bears to discuss the sixth mass extinction. So let's bring the discussion to policy options and possible solutions then. And I'd like... I'd like to take this briefly out to the global level again before we talk about what we can do here in Minnesota. Uh, governments, universities, and, and private non-government organizations around the world have established national and state parks, uh, wetlands and preserves, uh, wildlife sanctuaries, and similar protected areas to try and halt this decline and destruction of habitat and species vital to healthy ecosystems. Has this been affected has this been effective and is it enough? Well, it has, it is much better than having done nothing. Okay. It is effective in that it is helping save some species. Um, but uh, if we, we are unavoidably going to lose some species with what we've done, we've destroyed too many natural ecosystems not to have that happen. But if we are wise, we can minimize what happens in the future. And to do that, uh, we not only need the preserves that we have right now, the reserves we have around, right now around the world, we need them first to be managed better. So we have uh, reserves, uh, let's say, that are trying to protect rhinos where other people come in and kill them for their horn. And the, the managers don't have the resources, the number of people, the vehicles, the weapons to protect them. And so we have more reserves set up on paper 
then are really effectively uh, helping uh, preserve diversity. Uh, that's step one. We need to manage what we have better. Step two, we really need to at least double the area of reserves that are set aside, and we have to choose the right land. It seems that governments in many nations uh, say, yes, I will double my reserve area, and then they choose uh, a third of, of, uh, of the Arctic as the land to preserve, which has almost no diversity, or they choose uh, desert lands, which have very little diversity to preserve, and not the lands which actually have the species threatened. So, um, and of course, each government is a, a, a distinct entity, and it can do what it think is best for its people. And, and we do face trade-offs, as Janine mentioned. Uh, we, um, any land that we preserve, we can't use to grow food for people. So um, one step to actually make it possible to have uh, many nations with high diversity in the tropics, where population is exploding and incomes are exploding and where land is being rapidly converted, one solution is to help them greatly increase their yields. If they could have yields on their current land, like the yields that we get in Minnesota, they wouldn't need to clear much more land to feed not only who they have right now, but all the people we expect them to have there when their population finally levels off. So if we could help invest in great increases in agricultural production and do so in the most efficient ways, so we help them not have to uh, have agricultural production also equal massive water pollution and so on, which happened in the US. Uh, and, and there are ways to do that. If we can take that approach, um, we can go a long way toward preserving uh, the, the the amazing biodiversity that we see on Earth. There was this clear recognition uh, that that more needs to be done and needs to be done quickly at the United Nations Biodiversity Conference held in Montreal last December, which Dr. Kevin Bears you uh, you referenced earlier. Um, out of that. COP15 conference, in fact, came a landmark agreement with very urgent and ambitious measures to address this extinction event and to try to extend protections to wildlife ecosystems to dramatically reduce the current rates of loss. Can you give us the specifics of this agreement and what it hopes to achieve, Dr. Kavanagh Bears? Yeah, well, I can give you uh, some of the major goals of uh, the global biodiversity framework that was agreed on in Montreal in 2022. And the first is um, is to enhance, restore, or substantially increase the area of natural ecosystems by 2050 to maintain the integrity, connectivity, and resilience of ecosystems and to um, reduce extinction of human-induced extinction of species by 2050 um, by tenfold uh, and to maintain the abundance of native wild species and increase them to healthy and resilient level to also to um, enhance or maintain the genetic diversity when, within populations of wild and domesticated species safeguarding their adaptive poten potential uh, Dave mentioned um, wild relatives of crop species, maintaining their genetic diversity so that those provide food security for us. The second major goal in, um, involves managing and maintaining nature's contributions to people or ecosystem services, um, that these are valued, maintained, enhanced, um, and 
so those are the those are the two major things in terms of biodiversity. Then there are also monetary mechanisms and uh, especially for implementation that are involved in this. So wealthier nations helping uh, nations financially to, to do this work. Um, there are several things that have that are ongoing in the United States, including the America's the beautiful effort to preserve 30 percent of our land and waters by uh by 2030 i believe and um conserving forests and combating global deforestation prioritizing nature-based solutions recognizing and incorporating indigenous knowledge often we're finding that biodiversity is better managed on indigenous land than uh, in other places because they um were they're more connected to other species and have more holistic approaches to their management um, and so forth. Um, in I don't know all the po policies that are being implemented in Minnesota. I know that there is a 20-year moratorium on mining in the boundary well waters. I also know that there are a lot of efforts going on in the Twin Cities um, to try to replant trees and create uh, access to green space for um, environmental justice so that everybody has equal access to justice to 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 uh, to forests to green space to parks and to replant trees um, where they're needed so those efforts are going on and um, you know we have a we have a colleague uh, Sarah Hobby who's leading um, a long-term ecological research program here in the Twin Cities that's aimed at serving, at understanding diversity, but also trying to enhance it and improve um, environmental justice and access to green space for everybody. Um, and then there are, there are a whole, the, the Department of Natural Resources is, is working very hard to manage uh, natural areas. The U.S. Forest Service in Minnesota is working hard to manage a healthy forest to maintain healthy forests. Um, so there are an awful lot of efforts going on, and there's also room for citizen science and citizen action to help maintain our biodiversity. You can do this in your own yard, um, ma help maintain pollination services and other kinds of ecosystem services in your own yard by being conscious of, of what you plant. So I'm curious about the finance equation here. You mentioned uh, monetary efforts. And in a 60 Minutes episode discussing the sixth mass extinction last January, there was a segment about uh, preservation efforts in Mexico and how the government there is paying farmers in one local jurisdiction to not farm certain areas in order to preserve the local ecosystem. Here in Minnesota, we have this well-advertised budget surplus and lots of conversation about what to do with those funds. Has using some of that surplus to try and stem the tide of biodiversity loss here in the state been a part of that discussion? And if so, what are the priorities of those advocates? Well, um, first, using them that way, I think would be an excellent idea. Uh, but um, I must confess again, I'm a specialist. I'm not a policy wonk or whatever, and I don't know all the details of what is going on. Uh, I do know that several portions of, of state funding, for instance, uh, the Legislative Commission on Minnesota Resources invests in programs like this. I saw the list of 
uh, proposals they put forward, and many of them uh, address these kinds of concerns. The same thing is true for that, there's something else called the Lassard funding, which also funds uh, environmental uh, uh, initiatives around the state. And again, I saw in their list of proposals, uh, things that would help achieve this. But I don't know about the discussion about how the uh, current surplus might be used. I'd love to see it go that way. Um, in fact, I think that one thing is clear, we can't ask a landowner to do something to preserve, let's say, biodiversity on it uh, or to manage their land in a way which helps society if that comes to a cost of that landowner. We really can't expect that to happen unless we pay the landowner for what they do. And there is a, a great deal of interest locally and at the federal level in helping change our uh, laws related to agriculture and agricultural um, uh, support for farmers in ways that would pay them for doing things uh, that are, are better uh, for the environment and, and pay them a, a way that it makes up for anything they might have lost, let's say, in yield. For instance, uh, nitrogen fertilizer is clearly important to have higher yields. Uh, but uh, the curve, as you add more and more nitrogen, you get a lower and lower percent increase in the total amount of food produced. And in some place, the farmer can maybe add another um, 20 or 30 pounds of N per acre and, and get maybe 1% more yield, which would make a slight profit for them. Uh, but it has a big cost uh, to society because as you add more nitrogen, a higher and higher proportion of it is not taken up by the plants. It goes into the groundwater, it goes into the air, uh, and and causes harm that actually has a cost to all of the people in the state. And we can quantify those costs. And when you do that, you can find points where by paying a farmer $10 or 20 or 30 or $50 an acre to lower end use by a certain amount actually gives a big return in total to society. That money invested in the farmer making up for their loss or maybe slightly more than their loss actually greatly pays uh, pays even more in terms of how it improves uh, human health and, and the environment. So I think that's, if I had a surplus and I were in government, that's what I would be thinking about is making these win-wins where we can um, make farmers whole or maybe a little bit better than that at the same time that we really help save the environment and improve the environment for all of Minnesota. All right. Well, Unfortunately, Dr. Tillman and Dr. Cavender-Bars, we are having to wind the program down. So we would uh, like to give you each uh, the final word today. Um, what didn't we ask you that we should have asked uh, about the sixth mass extinction uh, and the associated public policy challenges and opportunities? Well, I would say, uh, I already sort of mentioned this, but I think most of the extinctions that'll happen in the sixth mass extinction event are gonna happen in the places in the world with the highest diversity. And these tend to be tropical poor countries. I think it's incumbent upon the richer nations of the world to help make that possible in these poorer countries because the whole world benefits uh, from retaining the, the immense natural capital of the world, our amazing biological diversity. Dr. Cavender Bears? Yeah, and I'll, uh, I'll end by saying that I think it's very important for humans to maintain connection to nature and it's all around you get to know it spend time in outside spend time in natural areas join citizens groups download the iNaturalist app to learn about the plants around you with all the technology we have now you don't need to be an expert to learn all the species in your yard you can have 
um, you can take a photo and often an app will tell you what it is and you can get to know these species, look them up, uh, become acquainted with them, enjoy them, spend time outside so that you know what we're losing so that you're motivated to protect it um, and get involved. Scientists can't do all the work of monitoring biodiversity and, and everywhere, but citizens everywhere can help. And the importance of citizen science in monitoring biodiversity is just so important. So that would be my plea. And, and you know, pay attention to what's in your own yard. Help help the bees and the butterflies by planting uh, native species that are friendly, uh, that provide food for them. And you'll be helping biodiversity all around us. And on that note, where can our listeners go to learn more about biodiversity and the healthy ecosystem preservation here in Minnesota and our options for crafting meaningful policy to address these issues? Well, maybe I'll just I'll just continue and say that we have a lot of resources in Minnesota. And some of the ones that I think are good for learning about biodiversity, are, go to the Bell Museum. They have amazing exhibits on on biodiversity. They've got the Biodiversity Atlas. You learn all kinds of things about biodiversity in Minnesota. Um, spend time in natural areas. The Minnesota Native Plant Society it, it, um, does all kinds of things. Uh, there's the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute that that uh, helps lifelong learners understand more about biodiversity. The Minnesota Master Naturalists, um, the Science Museum of Minnesota, and um, and then I would say, uh, look online at the MSP Urban LTER and see how you can help contribute to uh, biodiversity within Minnesota and uh, tree planting activities. Yeah, and I would only add, um, look up the Nature Conservancy, which is a, a Minnesota, North and South Dakota chapter is doing an awful lot trying to preserve and enhance biodiversity around the state and look at uh, something called the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, which is fighting to preserve the natural habitats of Minnesota. Well, this has been another great, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I was just gonna add the Minnesota Invasive uh, Pests and Pathogens, Terrestrial Pests and Pathogens Center at the University of Minnesota that's funded by the state legislature and they're doing extensive work to try to manage um, invasive pests and pathogens. Brilliant. Well, this has been another great informative conversation, but unfortunately, we've reached the end of our program. Dr. David Tillman and Dr. Janine Cavender-Bears, thank you so much for joining us on Public Policy this week. Rich and I want to thank you for the conversation and for your insights this morning. Yeah, I, I want to echo those, uh, those sentiments. I've learned more in the last hour than I think I had learned in the last uh, three or four days. So <laughs> we really do appreciate uh, uh, you joining us. It was such a great conversation, such an important topic. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And that will conclude this edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, each Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. I'm Rich Larson. My co-host today has been Nathan Leaf. Don't forget to join us next week when we discuss journalism, news media, and the fourth estate. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. 
Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We'll be here again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, everybody, and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.